Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled, The Non-Negotiable Truth of the Resurrection of Christ. This weekend is one that we commonly refer to as, and we know as, in the West in particular, as Easter. It's called that on our calendar. That's the day of the year it is, Easter Sunday. And it's a time when Christians around the world come together in their various congregations, some of them maybe in their homes. They get together with family, and they think about and they talk about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we can be a little bit like the curmudgeon when we think about Easter. After all, there are 52 Sundays in a year, and we are to go to church those 52 Lord's Days because He is risen, not just on Easter, not just on Christmas as we think about the birth of Christ, but we need to be in the Lord's house every time we have the opportunity and we are able to go because it's His house, and He deserves to be worshipped because He is risen. He's risen the other 51 Sundays of the year. And while that is true, we do need to worship Him each and every day of the week, and certainly every Lord's Day. I enjoy thinking about the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on that day that we refer to as Easter Sunday. I want to begin today's broadcast by reading for you, simply reading for you, the book of Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 has 20 verses And I want you to hear this resurrection account of our Lord, one of four gospel accounts in his Bible that contains the truth of the resurrection. We have four gospel accounts, each end with the resurrection. And in this broadcast, we will use Matthew's gospel to speak about the resurrection of Christ. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you, 
So they took the money and did as they were taught, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, unto a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And this concludes the gospel account of Matthew, Matthew's gospel account. There are many other details regarding and surrounding the resurrection of our Lord. He appeared at multiple times over a 40-day period. He appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to Mary Magdalene and had a conversation with her there at the sepulcher. He appeared in the midst of the disciples, and they were terrified. He met them on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, where Peter had returned to his occupation as a fisherman and rebuked Peter, telling him to go and feed the sheep, not to be fishing for fish. And then eventually Jesus leads them up, as you read in Luke's account in the book of Acts, to a mountain, and he ascends up into glory after telling them that they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and even under the uttermost parts of the earth. He ascends up to glory, and we are yet waiting on his return today. Last week's edition of Words of Grace focused on what a church considers non-negotiable as far as theological concepts are concerned. We used what we commonly refer to as the Articles of Faith to demonstrate this, and just in short, to refer back to that message, churches just about always have an official statement of faith, regardless of their denomination— And this statement, or this list of articles, is a list of doctrines and concepts they hold to, which are believed so strongly among them that they're not to be contested if one wants to remain in fellowship with that particular church body. And again, this is common in all denominations, and it's certainly the case with Baptists and historic Baptists, such as the church that I pastor. As we said last week, our Articles of Faith date back to the founding of this church body in 1808 and reflect the majority view of Baptists at that time, though such doctrines would be in a minority position today. And I might add a parenthetical statement that this is why at Flint River we're identified as a primitive Baptist congregation because we maintain a more historic form of the Baptist faith. People ask me all the time, what is a primitive Baptist? What does that mean? It simply means that we are historic Baptists. Sometimes we're referred to as old school Baptist. But as we think about non-negotiable truths, again, such as we emphasized last week, there are just concepts that we ought to affirm, concepts that we believe, concepts that we will not entertain any objection to, Lately, I've emphasized a few of these on Words of Grace. If you recall recently, we talked about the eternal sonship of Christ. This is one such doctrine that's not up for debate. This is not up for reconsideration. It's simply something that we need to affirm. Last week, we considered a few, such as the Trinity. That's not up for debate or discussion. That's simply the fact of the matter. The identity of the Scripture 
the New Testament as the only rule of faith and practice is not up for discussion. That's not up for debate. And we listed a few ecclesiological issues that we consider crucial as well as a Baptist church, such as how to ordain ministers, what the ordinances are, who is to administer the ordinances. These are concepts, again, that to us are non-negotiable, and every different church and every different denomination have these core beliefs that they hold that are a test of fellowship. A final thought on that before our non-negotiable truth for today. In our day of liberalism and theological free-for-all, it's good to stand for something. It's good to, as Solomon said, buy the truth and sell it not. It's not good, conversely, to remove the ancient landmarks, a statement that is wise that you need to remember. Never remove a fence post until you learn why it was put there in the first place. And it is good for us. In fact, we are commanded to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Today, we consider one of the most crucial non-negotiable concepts which exists, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to, first of all, share with you a statement from the book of Romans chapter 1, because it really summarizes, at least in my mind, why you would be a Christian why you would believe the Bible, why you would yoke up with a group of people who follow Jesus and not some other man, some guru, or some other historic movement, or perhaps no movement at all. Why be a Christian? Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 says that Jesus Christ, and if you back up into verse 3, this is concerning the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, that's his humanity, Jesus was verily man, and declared to be the Son of God with power, that's his deity, his divinity, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Someone once asked me why we believe the Bible just because it's the oldest book that we have. And I told them that the reason that we believe the Bible is not because of its antiquity. There are all kinds of writings that we reject, that we do not believe are factual and historic, are accurate and authoritative. The reason we believe the Bible is because Jesus rose again from the grave. The reason that we go to church is because Jesus rose again. The reason I'm a Christian is because Jesus rose from the grave— And what happened when he rose from the grave, everything he did and everything he taught was proven beyond a shadow of a doubt to be true and to be right. Jesus said in John chapter 10 that he lays down his life. No man has power to take it from him, but he lays it down. And if he lays it down, he will take it up again. There has never been anyone in the history of the world to be executed, to die, to be placed into a tomb, to lay there for hours, for days, and then come back to life, be resurrected, have the stone rolled away, and walk out to appear at will, and then ascend up to glory in the presence of witnesses. That only happened with the Lord Jesus Christ, and because that happened, we know that he wasn't just one teacher of many teachers throughout the history of the world who taught religious notions that people followed. He wasn't some sort of a cult leader or the leader of a heretical sect in the minds of first-century Jews. He wasn't just a political figure, and he's certainly not a myth. Jesus Christ is Lord, and we know that because of his resurrection. Now, he was declared to be the Son of God with power, 
according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Let's unpack that statement for just a moment, son of God. This makes him of the same substance and essence as the father. That title, son of God, as we have recently emphasized, means that he is divine. Now, you have both natures of the Lord Jesus here in Romans chapter 1, his human nature, his humanity, as it were. He's made according to the flesh of the seed of David. Jesus was a flesh and blood and bone man, body, soul, and spirit, a human being like us with one exception. He had no sin. He had no biological father. He was born of a virgin, and that is his humanity as the Son of Man. But as the Son of God, that communicates to us his deity, his divinity, that Jesus is the Son of his Father means that he is of the same substance and essence as his father, just like I am the same substance and essence of my biological father. We are Adam multiplied. We are of the same substance as Adam. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Everything that God the Father is, Jesus Christ is. They're of the same essence and substance. Now, you can refer back to our broadcast on that subject, but There's no God made before or after God. Therefore, since Jesus is of the same substance as the Father, he's eternal. He's from everlasting to everlasting. And since there is none greater than God, there's none greater than Christ. This means that there's no subordination, no greater or lesser than in the Trinity. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-eternal and co-equal. If you don't believe me that the concept of Jesus as the Son of God conveys his deity, just read the reaction of the Jews in the book of John. When Jesus said that his Father works hitherto and he works, the Jews in John 5.18 sought to kill him because not only had he broken the Sabbath, in their opinion, he also made himself equal with God by saying that God was his Father. You can read that in John 5.18. To say God was his Father in the sense that he said it meant that Jesus is divine. In John 18, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am the title of God in the book of Exodus. Jews understood that to mean that Jesus was divine. He was claiming divinity, so they tried to kill him in that chapter too. In John chapter 10, when Jesus says, I and my Father are one, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. He says, Why are you going to stone me. What good work have I done that you stoned me for? And they said, not for a good work, but for blasphemy, because thou being a man makest thyself God. Why did they interpret his statement as a claim to divinity? Because they understood to be the son of God is to be deity. It is to be divinity. The same substance, the same essence as the father. Jesus is eternally the son of God. And he was declared to be such by the resurrection from the grave on the first day of the week following his crucifixion when he gave up the ghost and died for our sins. Now, I want you to think about this, too. Jesus is what? In verse 3, our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. What declares Jesus as Lord? His resurrection. He is our Lord, and he is declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Think on that phrase for a minute. It's so common to us. Jesus is Lord. Or we might say, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that phrase is so commonly used by us today, we often lose sight of its meaning. When Jesus is called Lord, that is literally referring to him with the same word which Jews use to refer to Jehovah in Jesus' day. To say Jesus is our Lord is to say Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. 
the Lord Jesus Christ is to say that Jesus Christ is the Lord from the Old Testament incarnate. Jews so revered the name of God that they would not speak the name of God, which translates Jehovah in our English Bibles. This translates from a four-consonant Hebrew name, commonly referred to as the Tetragrammaton, four-letter name of God in the Hebrew language. But they so revered that name that rather than pronouncing it in their tongue, and again it translates into English as Jehovah, they would supplement the word for Lord instead. The KJV translators would follow that practice and that tradition as they translated the Old Testament most of the time the word Jehovah, the Tetragrammaton in Hebrew, translates into Lord. But the translators of the KJV let you know when they were doing that by placing the word Lord in all caps. If you've ever wondered why the word Lord occurs sometimes in the Bible in all caps, it's because it translates from the Tetragrammaton, or the word that translates Jehovah. Now, this even occurs in the Greek New Testament when the apostles would cite an Old Testament passage that referred to Jehovah. They would use the Greek word for Lord rather than transliterating the name of God into the Greek language and using that particular word. But when the Bible and when Christians say that Jesus is Lord or they use the title the Lord Jesus Christ, they're literally saying, we are literally saying that Jesus is Jehovah incarnate. And again, Jesus is declared to be the Lord. He's declared to be the Son of God with power because he was resurrected from the dead. Because he rose again, we know that he is Jehovah incarnate. He is God incarnate in human form because no one could be resurrected from the dead except they were God. No one could lay down his life and take it up again unless he were literally God incarnate. That takes a power that human beings simply do not have, and I don't believe that we will ever have. Now, you might legally die as your heart stops beating, but the electrical impulses have not left your brain, and you have not starved of oxygen yet, and so sometimes your heart can be shocked back into rhythm, and you're legally alive again. But to be dead, dead, where all the electricity has left the body and... It is just absolutely dead. The heart stops beating. There's no oxygen moving through it. The brain is starved of oxygen, and you are dead. No one has ever died and come back from that, except the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this proves his divinity. So for just a moment of time from 1 Corinthians, I want you to think about what it would mean if Jesus had not risen. Number one, his claim to divinity would be meaningless, as would be our claims of his divinity. If he's declared to be the Son of God with power, which means deity and divinity, by the resurrection, then without the resurrection, there is no claim to deity and divinity. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, the gospel is defined as the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, I declare unto you the gospel, I delivered unto you the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, and of the twelve, and of five hundred brethren, and James, and the apostles, and then he was seen of me as one born out of due time, as the Apostle Paul saw Jesus, at least on the road to Damascus, if perhaps not at other times as Jesus spoke with him and communicated with him as an apostle. Without the resurrection, if you paid attention to those passages, there's no gospel message. 
And the word gospel means good news. With no resurrection, there's no good news. We have no good news to share with you if Jesus is not risen. Consequentially, if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Verse 13, verse 14, if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then my preaching is pointless. There's no point in what we're doing. We might as well sell the building. We might as well close up shop and give it to some other group and go live our lives because there's no point in any of this if Jesus is not raised, if he is not risen from the grave. Even more terrifying than that, 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen: if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. If Christ is not raised, we are yet in our sins. We are still condemned. We are condemned criminals with no hope if Jesus is not raised. That's one thing that I hope that people of a Jewish religious persuasion understand, because they claim to believe, if they're religiously Jewish, in the God of the Bible, but then they deny the Christ of the Bible. Without the Christ of the Bible, we are yet in our sins, and death will bring us into judgment, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Our preaching is vain, and we would yet be in our sins. 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen, We are of all men most miserable if Christ be not raised. If in this life only we have a hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And so, as you see in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, if Christ be not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You might as well be a hedonistic person and do whatever you can to stuff your face and please the flesh, because when you die, that's it. It's either all over and you're annihilated, or you're going to be judged forevermore if this God that we proclaim from the Bible exists, because we are unworthy to stand in his presence without the redemption of Christ, as attested to by the resurrection. Without the resurrection, none of this means anything. And so obviously, we would have no hope at the resurrection of our bodies at the end of time, nor would we have any hope to be with God in soul and spirit when we die. We simply have no hope if Christ be not raised. I hope you see how high the stakes are, why this is so important and why non-negotiable truths matter. But since Jesus has risen, as we emphasize that fact for a moment, let me just clarify. His resurrection is a historical reality. Nobody denied the existence of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified and returned until modern critics. His skeptics, the scoffers, the unbelievers, his enemies, through history— have attempted to explain it away as either a stolen body or that he merely fainted. But no one throughout history was foolish enough to assert that Jesus never even existed. That's beyond ridiculous from a historical standpoint. We know that he did. You have followers of Jesus written of in the writings of the Jews and the Romans, witnesses of him that were willing to be martyred for their faith in him because they knew that he had risen from the dead. They were energized and prepared even to be slaughtered by wild animals, burned alive, beaten, beheaded. They were willing to lose it all because they had witnessed Christ. They knew that it was real. And so throughout history, since the time of Christ until the modern skeptic, nobody denied his existence. They would say, oh, The disciples stole the body and invented the lie that he had risen again. You're telling me that they stole the body and then they died proclaiming that lie? All of them? They didn't recant 
You see, people will die for a lie. They die for a lie all the time. The men that flew the planes into the building in 2001, September 11th, they died for a lie, but they thought that it was real. But the apostles wouldn't invent a lie and then die for something they knew to be false. They would recant. People don't die for things they know to be a lie. And those men, history reports, went to their death, along with hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of other believers in those early church centuries, proclaiming their faith in Christ. They died for their faith. And I just remind you, 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of 500 witnesses that had seen Christ raised again. There were literally hundreds of people that you could go up to and ask, and they would tell you, yeah, I saw Jesus after he was resurrected. I saw him. I know he's alive. And in the generation after that, you had the people who were the children of the people who had seen him alive. They'd say, yes, my mom and dad saw him alive. And then the grandchild generation after that, they could say, yes, my grandmother and grandfather saw him alive. That's why the resurrection is a historically accurate fact. This is the reality of it. Now, let's put the previous thought on its head. We considered what it would mean if Jesus hadn't risen from the grave. Let's consider since Jesus has risen. Number one, his claim to divinity is right. His claim to divinity is right. He's declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. He and his Father are one. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection attests to the fact that what he said was true and what he did was right. Number two, everything else that Jesus ever said was true, including the gospel. Jesus cites Adam and Eve. Jesus speaks of Noah. Jesus speaks of Moses. Jesus regarded the Old Testament as the Word of God. Jesus spoke of salvation. Jesus spoke of the end of time. Jesus spoke of the resurrection. He spoke of redemption. He confirmed that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because Jesus was raised again, everything that he said was true and ought to be believed, and we can have faith in that because of his resurrection. Number three, because Jesus rose again, our preaching is not vain. Our preaching is not pointless. There is a point to what we're doing. Number four, praise God, because Jesus rose again, we're not in our sins if we're people who know the Lord Jesus Christ. If we belong to him, we are not in our sins. Children of God have been saved from hell through Christ, and we know we don't have to fear death because Jesus rose again. You say, but I'm unholy. I am too. I'm a wretched sinner. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank my God through Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have salvation through Christ. I am not in my sins if Jesus died for me, and I know that because he rose again. Number five, we are not men most miserable because Jesus has risen again. All is not lost. This life is not all there is. And I don't have to worry about leaving this world and suffering for eternity for what I've done because Jesus rose again. I'm not all men most miserable. Number six, rather than saying, let us eat and drink, be hedonistic, for tomorrow we die, we've got something better to live for than temporary fleeting pleasure, pleasure of the flesh, which leaves us with guilt, destruction, damage, and no lasting fulfillment. We have something better to live for than eating and drinking and being merry because tomorrow we die and it all ends anyway. We've got eternity with Christ to look forward to, and so we can face each and every day with purpose and with hope as we walk as sheep with our shepherd. And then lastly, number seven, because Jesus rose again, we have a hope of the resurrection 
at the end of time. Our most feared and destructive enemy, death itself, shall be destroyed. Jesus has victory over it, and because of it, because he has risen, we will be with him in glory after he raises our bodies in that last day. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write, let me know that you've received the broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at MarchToZion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.